to be an effective engineer in crypto, you still have to be an effective engineer, period. And that understands, that means just like understanding engineering best practices, like how to scale systems, what systems look like with a billion active users and start modeling how your systems can get to a billion active users in a way that lets you grow your technical systems responsibly. Um, and especially in crypto, like the security blast rate is quite high. The, the consequences of systems going down is quite high. And like engineering rigor really needs to be in the forefront of a lot of these problems. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. I'm your host, Sam Plumini, and today's guest is Noam from Alchemy. So Noam is an engineer on the Alchemy team who is really deep into all things account abstraction, and he's actually leading a few initiatives within Alchemy uh, around AA. So Alchemy is working on an open source bundler architecture, uh, infrastructure for paymaster contracts, and several other things around AA for developers, such as uh, a little content guide they put together that we'll release in the show notes and other SDKs and thought leadership as well. We also get into EIP 6900, which is an ERC that the Alchemy team is supporting around uh, a standard for plugins for smart contract wallets. This episode was one in which I learned a lot uh, that I didn't already know, even in the past episodes we'd done on AA stuff. Uh, and I think you're going to find it interesting as well. So we talked through all the nitty gritty details of the architectures that Alchemy is working on, like the bundler and the paymaster contracts they're building, but also uh, A, what's possible, right? So in the uh, more inspiring for developer sense, like what can you do? What kind of automations can we create with some of this new tooling? But also uh, what kind of security things we need to look out for as developers with account abstraction? Uh, we walk through a user op gas packing uh, potential vulnerability. We walk through user op MEV, right? These bundlers are going to be run by people that are used to running nodes and there will be MEV opportunities potentially. So tons of interesting stuff in this episode. Noam was a fantastic guest uh, and I hope you enjoy. So sit back, relax, and let us know what you think. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof-of-concept superfluid Starknet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. All right, we are back with another episode of Devs Do Something. We have Noam here today from the Alchemy team. Welcome, Noam. Thanks, Sam. How's it going? Doing well. Doing well. Really excited to talk through a lot of the things that you guys are building, particularly around uh, account abstraction and infrastructure for account abstraction. Uh, but before we do that, can you give our audience just a brief introduction to yourself? Uh, what's your role at Alchemy? 
Uh, and, and what's the one-on-one on you? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Noam. I'm on the engineering team here at Alchemy. I've been here about two and a half years now, wearing a lot of hats over that time frame. And the past few quarters have been spent kind of answering the question of uh, what will be needed to get the next billion people on chain. And a lot of those answers kind of resolve down to a UX layer. So we've been focused heads down on account abstraction, account abstraction infrastructure, bootstrapping that ecosystem and working with developers to get onboarded. Um, before that, spent some time on our infrastructure and reliability offerings, adding new chain support and uh, moving up the stack, as we say. So building higher level APIs so the developers can focus on building the applications instead of the underlying infrastructure. Nice. And then how did you get into crypto as an industry? Typically, people have an interesting story. So, Yeah, I was actually a crypto skeptic for quite a while. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. I had friends mining Bitcoin in like 2010. And I never really understood the value prop of why we need digital money. And I think like the technology somewhat always makes sense to me. Like I have a background as a technologist. Um, but I think what eventually attracted me into crypto is beyond the technology, but also kind of like the uh, like economic game theoretic arguments of why, why systems like this make sense. Um, and so it was in 2020 and I was listening to a podcast actually. So appreciate you making podcasts. These are super powerful. Uh, I was listening to a podcast and, and the uh, guest was talking about stable coins and it really got me thinking and that quickly followed up with me installing MetaMask, playing around with DeFi and about a month later I was working at Alchemy. So it's a pretty quick turnaround for me. What was the podcast? You want to share what the podcast was? Maybe they appreciate a shout yeah. out. It's a bit cliched. It was uh, Naval Ravikant on Tim Ferriss talking about stablecoins. Nice. That's a good one. I remember that one. It's, it's a good episode. Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. So yeah, you're in, you're in the space now. You're at Alchemy. Uh, you're building out all this infrastructure, right? You, you care about uh, bringing this next wave of users on chain or using things that interact with blockchains. Um, can you... You know, maybe before we yeah we get into what you built, can you give us your take on some of the current AA discourse? Right, it seems like it's uh, it's become a hypey thing, right? We've had people on, like we have, we've had several people on in the in the space who are experts on this this sort of topic, and they all kind of say, listen, you know, this isn't a silver bullet, right? This is just more of a buzzy term now. We get it. There's some new things that we want to build, but like, how do how do you see this debate? Uh, what, what's your take here? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think all hypey things in crypto generally have like a kernel of, of truth in them. I think last year's was like MEV and the hype around that was incredible. And there are some really interesting projects that have come out of that hype. Um, and I think like my background, even before Alchemy, has just been building systems for scale and like building systems that can address over a billion people. And like the current systems don't do that. And I think what really excites me about account abstraction is that like there's no way that I see crypto scaling to a billion people with the current account system we have today. It's just not robust enough to handle that kind of volume and handle like less educated users. And so account abstraction um, starts to address these UX issues. And there is a lot of hype, but I do think that it's like the correct platform and having like a programmable on-chain account to enable the next billion users on-chain. And I agree that it's not a silver bullet, but I do think it sets the stage for us to move in the right direction. Um, and I also think that like a lot of the confusion kind of stems from the term account abstraction. Like account abstraction itself is not a term for a billion people. Um, it's pretty confusing. And if you ask 10 people, you'd probably get 10 different answers of what it means. Uh, but for us, account abstraction really is, is enabling smart contract accounts on the biggest developer ecosystem. And we're kind of helping shift frame, 
and frame the focus on smart contract accounts and what's possible with smart contract accounts instead of like the protocol level account abstraction, which refers to from Ethereum's perspective, it's abstracting the difference between end, like externally owned accounts or keys as, as we know them today and smart contract accounts, which are now possible with 4227 infrastructure. Right. Right. That's a, that's a good take. Good, good measured take. I think, I think that's a, most of that in, all that in there is accurate. So for listeners that are, are somewhat new to this, right, that are, are DAP developers, right? I mean, everyone listening to this is technical, but maybe for people that are more like on the lower level solidity side who are here trying to understand what some of these things are, can you walk us through like the infrastructure that is needed to implement what people call a kind of abstraction, right? You have smart contract wallets, bundlers, paymasters, all this stuff. Can you give us just like a brief rundown of each of these things that are important, maybe what their role is in this discussion? Yeah, for sure. So um, the infrastructure is built in specification with ERC-4337. And actually, a bit of a, a tangent, but before 4337, there was another EIP 3000 and something, I can't remember the exact number, that was actually in protocol account abstraction. Um, and that had gotten all the way through draft review and was nearly finalized and ended up being punted on because it's a hard fork and uh, the core client devs are some of the busiest people on the planet and there's a lot on their plate and like this just didn't make the cut right now. Um, and instead, they decided that we can test this thesis in a more lightweight fashion by building it and modeling it with off-chain infrastructure. And that's where we got to ERC-4237. So it gives us a way to test this account abstraction thesis make sure that we're building the right infrastructure and modeling things in the right way without actually hard forking Ethereum to support this paradigm. And so the pieces of 4237 are primarily this bundler that you mentioned. So it's called a user operation bundler. Uh, user operations can be thought of as a sort of meta transaction that contain the user's transaction as, as well as some other metadata uh, around executing it. Um, and this bundler accepts user transactions and uses its EOA to effectuate a single transaction on chain. Um, the current flow is like, as an end user, I will sign my user op, I will send it to a bundler. The bundler uh, will propagate it across its own alternate P2P mempool, but also start bundling transactions together, or rather user ops together into a transaction. It posts that transaction to what's called the entry point contract, which does some light validation and essentially is there to make sure that the bundler gets paid back for the gas it uses to create this transaction. The entry point then forwards these to the user's smart contract accounts that execute these transactions. Uh, and like that's how the users can effectuate transactions via smart contract accounts on chain. There's also a second component there, um, the paymaster contracts. And these paymaster contracts allow developers or end users to create abstractions on gas. So right now, every transaction on a blockchain like Ethereum requires a gas fee payment. And these, get, these paymasters let developers abstract that by creating gas policies. So you can create a sponsoring gas policy in which uh, a third party sponsors all of the users' transactions that are eligible. You can create things like ERC-20 gas policies. So we've seen demand for things like stablecoin. ERC-20 gas policies, which allowed end users to pay for gas with stable coins instead of with like the native token, like Ethermatic. So it creates a level of abstraction on terms of gas payments to make the UX on those a lot more seamless. Makes sense. So can we unpack these just a little bit more? I think you gave a great uh, description of what the, the transaction flow looks like. But like, what what is this bundler under the hood? I mean, I guess there will be different implementations here. Uh, that compete for for developer usage, but like in the in the context of alchemy, like like what is this? What is this thing? Is this some kind of like 
know that you host written Rust or something? Like, what exactly is it? Like, when I sign, when I sign this, you know, message and send it to to the bundler, what's the bundler doing? Yeah, great question. So, in the same way that a user op is kind of a meta transaction, I would say a bundler is almost a meta node, um, in that it, it's analogous to a node client. It's a binary. We're writing one right now. Uh, it's it's going to be open source in a few weeks. Um, and it's a standalone client right now that accepts user operations. It will soon be facilitating its own P2P mempool or multiple P2P mempools. Um, and then it has the job of bundling these user operations and posting transactions to the uh, L1. And when I say L1, really, it's any, it's any network. It can be Ethereum, but it can also be like the rollups on Ethereum or sidechains or any, any EVM chain right now. Um, and so... Over time, like with enshrined account abstraction, we expect the role of the bundler and the execution layer, really the block builder, to merge. So um, when we have enshrined account abstraction and enshrined uh, proposal builder separation, which will be in a few years from now, um, the role of the bundler is the same as the role of the block builder today. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so let me ask you a question that, that comes up. When I, when I start thinking about this, right? We've had lots of MEV folks on. Uh, people that are interested in this sort of topic in general, both like, you know, how do you maybe avoid it? And also like, how do you uh, make a lot of money doing it? I mean, like, is user op MEV, that some, is that something people are thinking about, right? If, if, I, if I'm a searcher right now and I'm, you know, I'm running, you know, I'm, I'm playing the game of MEV, you know, should I should I be looking at this bundler going, how can I run one of these? I mean, like, how do you see MEV playing a role in, in, in this whole user op new thing? Or is that just like a flawed question? No, no, no. That's, that's a great question. Uh, MEV is omnipresent. And no matter what part of the stack you're operating in, there's going to be some MEV concerns. Um, and with this alt mempool, like, there are going to be MEV questions. And there are some interesting people that are starting to think about it. Um, I think it's a little bit early to be overly concerned right now, just given the volumes we're seeing of user ops right now. Like it's a nascent space and like developers are working on integrating it, but there's not the same level of volumes as we're seeing on other networks and other mempools yet. That said, like there will be the same like sequencing ordering mev extraction problem on uh, on user ops. And we hope that a lot of the existing infrastructure built by the flashbots of the world um, kind of generalizes to support user ops as well as transactions, given that they're both kind of the same flavor of object. Um, there's also, this is a, a bit of a tangent, so feel free to rein me back in, but there's a, a bit of a interesting framing here where this alt mempool, uh, folks have been calling as infrastructure for intents. I don't know, are you familiar with like the intent centric architectures that have been discussed of late? Yes. Yeah, so, so you can check out like Anoma and Flashbot Suave as examples, but. Um, how I would distinguish like an intent versus a transaction is like, I intend to buy a pair of shoes and have them shipped to my house. And the equivalent transaction would be like, I'm purchasing shoes with serial ID 12345 from this warehouse in Fresno that's getting shipped to me on this truck with this driver on this state. And I'm being very prescriptive about what the transaction is. And the intent is more focused around like the end outcome of what I want to happen, right? So like the outcome is like, I just want to re receive a pair of shoes on my house. The transaction is probably a series of transactions that are very prescriptive of how to arrive at that intent. And I think this alt mempool is actually uh, a good infrastructure for like intent-based architectures in that like 4237, you can almost imagine as like 
infrastructure to start bootstrapping in tents, um, where the end, at the end of the day, we want users to be like, hey, I want to swap ETH for the most amount of USDC. I don't care what protocol. I don't care what network. I don't care like all these prescriptive parameters. I just want to swap 2,000, like, uh, like one ETH for like as most USDC as I possibly can, right? And like, it's the outcome that matters. It's not like that I'm using Uniswap or that I'm using Arbitrum. Um, and so like we can start modeling these intents with these user ops, um, which I think also opens up like a whole, like kind of tying that back to MEV. I think that the MEV problem on intents is also a very interesting one. That is really interesting. Yeah, I think that the end game for this stuff, if, if people actually expect users to use this stuff, it's going to have to be that most of these things fall into the background, except for the absolute power users, right? Um, like it's it's more of like the like a jobs to be done mindset than a uh, this protocol versus that protocol mindset. Like no no average human being, or even like the typical like person working at a financial institution. If financial institutions want to want to use these things in the future, they don't really want to think about the different protocols. They want to just find the optimal thing and do the optimal thing. So I think that's an interesting thing to look at. You said the it's the it's the intense based architecture. Intent. Like intent based. Intent. intent based. Okay. We'll we'll do some research, maybe have somebody else on who's an expert yeah. in that as well. We'll we'll go deep on it. But okay. Totally. But to your point too about AA not being a silver bullet, I think like to kind of realize the full intent based system. Um, and I think like that's kind of what's needed really to onboard, let's say, like uh the metas of the world of crypto, or like if you if you took four billion people and say, Hey, like you have to use crypto rails today, what breaks? Like a lot breaks, and AA starts to address some of these UX issues. But there's a lot of just like convergent parallel threads around like um, block space, interoperability, privacy, education, key management um, that all have to kind of converge in parallel to support that kind of scale. 100%. 100%. Okay. So we're, we're still in the bundler. Okay. This is like a, you said it's almost like a meta node where right? you have this like parallel set of kind of transactions called user operations that are bundled together by the bundler or someone running the bundler. These then need to be posted to the chain, and the way this is done is through the entry point contract. Can you unpack the entry point contract and how that process actually works to, to post these user operations uh, on chain? So the most basic responsibility of the entry point contract is actually to protect the bundler. So the bundler has its own private key that it uses to post these transactions. And when it posts these transactions, it also pays for the gas of all of these transactions. So if 200 users send their user ops to a bundler, the bundler bundles them and posts a transaction. It's not paying gas for these 200 user ops. And we need a way for the bundler to recoup the, that, that gas payment because it's not expected to be fronting all of this gas for the whole ecosystem. So the entry point at its core implements the logic of refunding the bundler, meaning that like it checks a bunch of preconditions, executes the user operations, and then returns the gas paid back to the bundler's account. So that's like the most basic thing the entry point does. It also is starting to own a little bit more logic around managing paymaster stakes. So um, with paymasters, there's a certain reputation consideration that has to be managed, and that's managed with stakes. It also helps manage the user's smart contract accounts nonce at this point as well. So there is a little bit more logic moving in there, but like the most fundamental responsibility of the entry point is protecting the bundler by making sure that it gets repaid for its gas payments. So... One other question on this that I don't know if I have clarity on. How will the entry point contract be deployed? Who gets to deploy the entry point contract? Is this like a 
like a protocol level thing where the core devs will get together and deploy a canonical entry point? Will this be some group of people, maybe Alchemy included in this group of people say, this is the entry point contract, use that? Like how will the canonical entry point contract be chosen? And could there be multiple entry point contracts? Yeah, I'll answer that in reverse order. One, there can be multiple entry point contracts. And even on Ethereum, like the community recently deployed a new version of the entry point. So they're versioned and they're deployed at different addresses and multiple are supported. Um, at Alchemy, we're only supporting the latest because of some, some vulnerabilities discovered in the earlier one. Uh, and in general, like anyone's welcome to deploy an entry point. Like if you want to run a custom entry point, you can deploy your own entry point. The ones being used today were deployed by the ERC authors. So they're a little bit more community sanctioned. Uh, but the whole infrastructure suite supports multiple entry points. And indeed, like the API spec uh, returns entry points as arrays and not as singletons. Got it. So I'm just thinking through this. I'm thinking through this again, back to my uh, thinking for the, M the MEV folks here. What's So who decides what entry point is ultimately used? Like, for example, you know, any, I mean, these, these bundle architectures are going to be open source, right? So in theory, there will be multiple. Uh, and in theory, the, the, the entity or person running the node could use whatever entry point contract they want, I think, unless I'm wrong about that. What's to stop the opportunistic folks out there from deploying their own entry point contract, forwarding all the user operations to that entry point contract, and then uh, adding some parameter on that contract, which like adds 10% in gas fees on top of what they, what they were supposed to cost, uh, and just take that money. Like, like I guess this this is maybe super hypothetical, but I'm just pushing you here because this is interesting to me, and I think some of our listeners is that, is that scenario plausible? Is that, is that something that that could happen? Um, so it's it's decently plausible. I don't know if that like for the bundler would be implemented on the entry point as opposed to in the bundler itself. Um, but in general, um, there's no one stopping anyone from deploying more entry points in the in the specified API for three seven. There's one API ETH supported entry points. And like that's what you can use to see which entry points a given bundler supports. And there's an equivalent API for paymasters. Um, and we keep those like in sync at Alchemy. Um, but in general, it's up to the infrastructure that you're using to decide which entry points are available for you to use. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. How about we get into to the paymaster now? So you said that the, there are some things... Uh, involved with the entry point contract that also manage some of the paymaster stakes. Can you walk our listeners through like what the role specifically of the paymaster will be and how the paymaster will actually work under the hood? Yeah. Um, so there's a few flavors of paymasters. Um, at Alchemy, we're running a verifying paymaster behind our gas policy services. And what a verifying paymaster is, is like the most simple form of this. So uh, it's a contract that essentially accepts a signature and then pays for gas of a user operation if that signature is valid. And so that flow on Alchemy's gas policy services is uh, developers would send our endpoints a user operation with a request to provide a signed paymaster and data field. Um, our endpoints would check that user operation against the developer's predefined gas policies. So a gas policy is like, between these dates, on these trans on these addresses, up to these limits, 
I want to apply this policy. Um, and if the user opt qualifies for a policy, then we'll return back what's called a signed paymaster and data payload. That paymaster and data payload then gets put inside the end user's user operation. So it's one of the fields in a user operation. And the end user signs that whole thing like they would a transaction. They send that to the bundler. The bundler sends that to the entry point. The entry point sends that to the user's contract. And the contract in the, actually, the entry point in the um, like pre-execute stage will send this to the paymaster contract defined in the paymaster and data field. That paymaster then pulls out the signature from this paymaster and data field and validates it. And the way Alchemy's works is if that signature is valid, then that gas policy is applied with right now the gas policies all being sponsoring policies. So that, and from the user's perspective, that transaction, the gas payment would be sponsored. They don't have to pay for gas. Um, other flavors of this, again, could be like the user pays for gas in USDC or DAI or some other stablecoin or even native tokens, depending on the context of the application. So you can imagine... Like if I'm playing Fortnite and there's a Fortnite token, then this would enable me to pay for gas and make the Fortnite token instead of ETH. Makes sense. So the implementing team has some options there in terms of how they want to specifically use it. Um, if I'm listening to this and I'm a developer, right? You know, let's say I have a DeFi protocol that I've built that I have a front end for, or I have a Web3 social application or a game. What do I need to know to be able to implement some of this stuff? I mean, pre prerequisite number one is you have to support smart contract wallets. But like, if you're talking to that group of people, like what, what, what advice do you have for them to actually prepare to make the most use of these new technologies? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think number one is, like you said, you have to be ready to use smart contract wallets. And the nice thing about 437 is it actually doesn't require that you change your, your dApps contracts at all. Um, so prior standards, like the meta transaction standard, which also enables gasless transactions, actually requires the dApps contracts to change. 437, uh, completely agnostic of what the dApps contracts are. You don't have to change anything. You do have to select a smart contract implementation. And we actually started putting together a few weeks ago an ERC to start standardizing some of the characteristics of smart contract accounts. And one thing that really excites us about contract accounts is like the extensible nature in that it's turn complete, fully programmable, and you can augment it with any functionality that you want. And what we're noticing that uses them now is that there's like some fragmentation in how these contracts are extended. So like some popular examples are like safe has one extension system, Argent might have another extension system, zero dev might have a third extension system. And this creates a bit of a fragmented ecosystem. So we've started putting together uh, an EIP. It's EIP 6900 to start standardizing this extensible nature of smart contract accounts. And what we've been telling folks is that DAP developers today are going to be plugin developers tomorrow, meaning as a DAP, I can actually write a self-contained module of logic as a plugin and ask my users to or prepackage into their accounts um, this, this module of logic. So a very basic example of a plugin might be what we're calling the virtual cold storage hook. And for that, um, like it's essentially saying, I never want to trade my board ape. I never want to leave my account under any circumstance. If a transaction ever tries to move the board ape out of my account, revert the transaction, right? So you're putting in a global hook that verifies that your board ape never leaves your account. And that's like a pretty simple example of what a plugin might look like. And we've seen other more complicated flavors around like 
cross-chain interoperability or MEV awareness um, or partial privacy and other things that end users might find desirable. Um, and so kind of circling back to my intent concept, if 4237 is infrastructure to support intents, we kind of view 6900 as a marketplace for intents where developers can prepackage intents into these plugins and then end users can install whatever they want based on their desired outcomes, less so than on the prescriptive nature of the transactions that they're sending. So like in the partial privacy, they're not really pres prescribing how they want privacy to be enforced. They're just saying, hey, I want my transactions on chain to be default private. Um, let me install this plugin that is 6900 compatible to my account. And from there, all of my transactions through this plugin will be private. Um, so the other thing that kind of tying this back to your question of like, what should DAP developers be aware of? The other thing they should be aware of is like, how do I want to augment my end user experience on chain? And can that be modeled as a plugin? And we've had a lot of really interesting conversations around like enforcing royalties or tipping or like cross-chain payments or mul like multiple other conversations around like specific functionality that would elevate the experience of the, uh, uh, like the end user facing application that can be implemented as a plugin on the end user account. Super interesting. Yeah. So that's ERC 6900 for those of you uh, who are keeping track of your EIPs. I want to come back to that process because I think uh, it's always interesting to hear uh, the behind the scenes of how many ERCs drafted and all that. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But what I think is interesting is is that, I mean, that example you, you, you gave us, right? Where you have a kind of global hook which says, hey, this asset, don't let this asset leave my wallet under any circumstances. Revert anything that 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 tries to get this, this board ape out of my wallet. What other interesting things are, are possible here, right? You list on the Alchemy website, like there's a bunch of automations that are possible, like portfolio rebalancing. I mean, how how could this evolve, right? Like what, what do you think is possible? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think like that's also why we're so excited about the marketplace concept is we have some answers, but there's a lot of really smart people that have their own answers given their own experiences. And we want to just like standardize the ability to like implement these answers. Um, but what we see now, like at a very high level, so things that excite us are from a security perspective, EOAs today implement what you can call authentication in that like you sign a transaction and it executes on the account. It's almost like uh, giving access to the account's assets, but they don't implement authorization, meaning that any private key has total root control over a whole account. There is no way for me to say, hey, this private key has actually only the permission to move these assets or interact with these contracts. With account abstraction, because it's all programmable, certain signers can have certain permissions and that starts to give you an authorization model as well. So you can say like, hey, the signer for this application has only permission to move like 5,000 USDC per month, interact with these contracts and these function selectors and anything else it tries to do will revert. So you're now limiting the scope of what any one signer can do in an application, which provides you stronger security guarantees because you don't need to use a root key for every interaction. You can use a more scoped key that if it gets leaked, doesn't compromise your whole account. So that's like authentication and authorization. I think you mentioned something around account automation, which is another example of um, today, like on Ethereum, the only form of transactions you can do is what's called a push transaction. I sign a transaction and push it to the network. But you can think of like in, in the real world and online and like in day-to-day -day usage, a lot of transactions are actually pull transactions. Like if you sign up for auto pay on rent, you're not going in and pushing a transaction every month. It just gets drafted from you. And that's what's called a pull transaction. And you can start modeling pull transactions too with these restricted signers. So like, hey, I want to pay rent. So I'm issuing a signer. It has permission to pull 2,000 USDC one time per month, and that's it, right? And then my landlord has the signer and plugs it into their system. And once per month, they draft 2,000 USDC from my account. 
but it's not like they can do anything else with that, with that key. And so I both have the security, but I also have this full payment model. So that's like another example. Um, I think like a very simple one that will be very appealing to a lot of developers is, is just the basic concept of batch transactions, right? Today, like everyone's gone through the flow of like, I go to Uniswap, I approve USDC, and then I trade USDC for ETH. And if you could just bundle that, so like, hey, I go to Uniswap and I approve and swap USDC in one transaction, that's such a better user experience. So starting to tackle a lot of these things. And I think like, again, it's turn complete. And we'll, I'm really excited to see like what developers come up with in terms of how to extend functionality here. I love it. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic uh, set of uh, a couple of examples there. And I think that this this idea there would be a kind of almost plug-in marketplace. I don't know if you access that on the Alchemy website or within uh, like your wallet provider's UI or something like that. But I, I can I can kind of see a watercolor vision of what this could look like, and it's very interesting. Um, so okay, back to the back to the EIP process, right? What has this been like behind the scenes? Uh, we talk to people that are tr that try to get standards out there and implemented, right? This ends up being a battleground sometimes. Uh, so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about how this has gone for you guys and any any learnings you might have for other people out there who want to do similar things. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting experience. Um, this is our first time writing the EAP at Alchemy, and, and we've learned a lot so far. Um, I think our goal here is, like, we've noticed this fragmented ecosystem of extensible like account modules or plugins or whatever you want to call them um and like we think that like we are kind of in a position to avoid this fragmentation and like we think that like unifying this like this framework is a big way to drive the whole ecosystem forward so we noticed the need and we started thinking about it internally and decided that to address this the best way forward is an eip so we spent a couple months internally prototyping various examples and architectures and drafting this EIP before taking it to the community. And the whole EIP process is pretty interesting where like, there's no one really stopping you from marking EIP as finalized as soon as you want it to be finalized. But that kind of defeats the point too, in terms of um, like you need adoption and buy-in from the community to actually implement the standard that you're proposing. Like if you mark an EIP as finalized and no one implements it, then it's not useful to anyone. So it's been a pretty interesting back and forth with us and several community members around like uh, battle-proofing this EIP. We're actually in the process right now of, of re revisiting the architecture given some of the comments voiced by the community. Um, we set up a Telegram chat that now has over 100 active members in it discussing various trade-offs made within the EIP. And it's all again, getting rolled up into an ETH Magicians forum. And I think like it's both like the, the blessing and the curse of having like a permissionless decentralized ecosystem is that like if Stripe wants to roll out a product and roll out docs for that product, they just roll it out and they own it end to end and they can decide, hey, like here's how this API works and here's how this product works. And like without an owner, it's it's really interesting. It really forces you to have that that discourse to find the optimal solution that works for everyone. Um, but it also just tends to move a little bit slower because you're you're managing so many stakeholders and they're all in different time zones and they all have different needs and requirements. So um, from that perspective, it's like been a very good exercise in and how to properly engage the community. In hindsight, I think we probably could have started engaging them a little bit earlier, even and getting this information out to the public discourse sooner. Um, but now that it's out there, we're having some pretty fruitful conversations around pushing it forward, making sure we get buy-in, making sure that we have wallets implementing it, and making sure that we're able to iterate on it before we market is finalized. And like one note is actually for ERCs, there's actually very little incentive to mark them as finalized. So like even ERC four two three seven is technically still in draft right now. And essentially that just lets you still make updates and changes as you need to. So 
while 4237 is already in production and there are a lot of teams building on it, um, there are optimizations, changes, and improvements that are still being discovered and they're being reincorporated into the spec that wouldn't be possible if it was already finalized. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a great behind the scenes, right? I think one thing that people don't realize, especially if they come from a very technical background, is that this is a very human, almost political process, right? Where it's not just like your design, if your design's the best, everyone's going to use it. That's not true, right? If you're building a standard, or if you're trying to get other people to use something, it's about more than just like the perfect design. Obviously that helps, right? It's kind of a prerequisite, but it's also, like you said, going out and getting feedback, understanding that this isn't just your brainchild. This is something that many, many people are going to have to uh, be on board with if it's gonna be implemented across an entire ecosystem. And I think it's good to hear someone like yourself, you know, give that context because it's uh, it's an example of what it actually looks like. But I can hear some decentralization maxis out there listening, wondering something. And this is something that I've wondered a little bit too. You know, one of the trade-offs with like the decentralization and centralization spectrum is that the further you get uh, toward decentralization, usually what happens there's a bu- is that there's a bunch of convenience trade-offs. Things become much less convenient, right? Uh, Google is an incredibly centralized company with a bunch of very centralized products, but a lot of Google's products are extremely convenient, right? And what this whole account abstraction ERC-4337 thing is, is it's a move towards, you know, many things, but one thing it's moving toward is increased convenience for the user, right? This intent-based architecture, right, is, is really to make things convenient for users. So my question for you is like, how do we avoid, and maybe it's unavoidable, but how do we avoid centralization and pure centralization around a couple of pieces of infrastructure here uh, as we roll out some of these products? Is that something that you guys think about at all? Yeah, 100%. Um, I don't think any of us would be here right now if we didn't care about decentralization. And that's why in this ecosystem, decentralization comes first right now and convenience comes second. And we're focused on maintaining decentralization while figuring out the responsible way to make convenient user-facing products. Um, To that point, uh, there's probably seven or eight different bundler implementations we've already seen come out. Um, and several other teams are going to be running bundlers, um, over time too. Like, I think there's always somewhat of like a, how to describe it? Almost like a slinky where like the technology advances and then like the ecosystem comes in and figures out how to like responsibly address it. Like we saw that with MEV, we're going to see this a little bit with AA too, where like the technology is being written and over time, like the ecosystem's position is like, how, what's the long-term responsible roadmap for this technology. And with the bundler, like I said, the way I see that playing forward is with enshrined account abstraction and enshrined proposal builder separation. The role of the bundler really is going to be the same as the role of the block builder. And at that point, we get to like leverage the tons of research from various institutions, flashbots, EF, a lot of very smart teams are thinking about this, about how to responsibly grow the block builder role and decentralize the block builder role. And hopefully we'll get to leverage all of that instead of having to reinvent the wheel here. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So, I mean, I, you're open sourcing the build, the bundler. There's a bunch of other open source implementations. I think I'm pretty confident that that can stay decentralized because anyone's going to be able to run one, right? Right. Um, what about like on this? I mean, I guess smart contract wallets, you know, again, maybe you have centralization on a couple of UIs, but... I don't think that there will be a provider that comes out there that says, let's do away with, with self-custody and we're going to manage this for you. I mean, how do you see that? Do you think that yeah. 
that the decentralized providers will continue to to remain strong as we get more adoption? Or do you think there are going to be a couple of players that come in and say that like, uh, hey, this is like the, you know, you, you sign in with your password and we manage your wallet for you. Like, do you think that that's going to happen or how do, you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think like this is kind of the reason we've been excited. We've actually been excited about smart contract accounts for a couple of years now, even though we only entered a couple months ago. Like it's always been what we've seen as an answer to the um, Web 2 experience with Web 3 characteristics. So it's still decentralized. You can still model it trustlessly. But it starts to address some of these convenience factors that you mentioned, where like the alternatives we've seen prior are just like managed or custodial solutions. So um, in this sense, this is like the way of us scaling the ecosystem in a decentralized, responsible manner while addressing the convenience factor that you've been talking about. I also think it's important to kind of address like, I think there's a few different components of the signing stack, I'll call it. So there's the actual contract account that's on chain. All execution happens on the decentralized network. Um, you can access that from any node. That's decentralized, but you still have to manage keys. And like right now, keys are EOAs, but on contract accounts, keys are signers. And you still need a responsible way to manage these keys. And so there's this whole key management layer. And we've seen solutions there ranging from like, like custodial solutions, sure, where you can maybe have custodial signers for your contract accounts. But you can also have like MPC signers where maybe it's censorship resistant, but not liveness resistant. So like if a third party goes down, you might not be able to access your account for a bit, but they can't send transactions to your behalf to like fully non-custodial solutions where we've seen prototypes using secure enclaves on your phone. So the secure element on an iPhone has a piece of hardware specifically designed for storing cryptographic keys. And the issue is you can't use that on Ethereum today because it uses a different elliptic curve. So it uses SECP 256R1 and Ethereum uses 256K1. And so these keys are incompatible. But with account abstraction, like another thing you can do is write a validation scheme for a different elliptic curve. So now all of a sudden you can use the secure element on your phone to sign transactions on Ethereum, meaning that signing a transaction is as simple as using Face ID on your phone. It's stored on the hardware. It's entirely unfishable. And you don't have to worry about like uh, custody or third parties at all because everything's happening on your device, right? So again, it moves, like a kind of abstraction starts to move us in a way where like with the first order, like the first um, requirement is still maintaining decentralization and trustlessness. And then now we have the primitive to start addressing the convenience factor as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, every time you you kind of give a couple of examples here, I can, I see these as like almost individual building blocks that will be kind of stitched together to build these these better experiences with this intent based architecture as the almost north star for how these things should be thought about at at, at a high level. It's really interesting. Um, so we're talking about key management now. Uh, a kind semi related topic is is just like security in general. Are there any new like attack vectors that are presented by some of this new tooling? I mean, you sent me a couple of links before we recorded, but uh, would love for you to unpack what those what those might look like. Yeah, I think the biggest one that folks have been calling out is the attack vector on the contract account itself, right? You're now writing a lot of software and even more so beyond the core account, each of these plugins might have their own attack vector and um, risk, risk vectors. So... From that sense, there's a lot of code that needs to be secure, a lot of code that needs to be audited, a lot of code that needs to be like battle tested and, and be able to stand the test of time. But kind of looking back, uh, I think one great example that we can see, show to see this as possible is SAFE, where SAFE's a contract account that's been around now for four years and has never really been seriously compromised in any way. Um, and that just goes to show that this is possible to write secure accounts in this, in this manner that are resilient and can stand the test of time. 
And we're kind of excited to stand on their shoulders and continue to push this forward here. Got it. There's another one you sent. Is, it was either you that wrote this write-up or someone on your team, but there was like a user op gas packing vulnerability. Can you uh, unpack that one a little bit? That was less of a risk for end users and actually more of a risk for infrastructure providers um, in that the TLDR of, of that report was that prior, because of gas packing on user ops, you could construct user ops with different contents that it would admit the same user op hash or user op hashes that were different that actually had the same contents. Um, and from an inf infrastructure per perspective, like this can cause collisions that can then uh, cause release of funds unintentionally or payment for gas unintentionally or otherwise like as a block explorer just create havoc in terms of trying to figure out what's going on on chain so it was more of an infrastructure level risk than an end user facing risk got it. okay so that that's for the the folks that are out there wanting to run bundlers and, and get involved on the infrastructure side so i think that, that makes sense uh, i'll put a link to that article you sent in our show notes as well in case people are curious to go deeper on that one yeah, but okay that's a fantastic overview of, of some of the different areas of this uh, stack that you guys are building and contributing to. I'd like to ask a couple of questions about your work uh, because I think it might be useful for other people in similar positions as yourself, right? So what you're doing is building software that other developers are, are supposed to use, right? That's what a lot of us are doing in this space. But, you know, in your seated alchemy, you're using stuff that is used by a large swath of the industry. Right. So uh, how do you think about building things like developer tooling or developer APIs? Do you have any high level philosophies or things you've learned that you maybe like to, to pass along to, to other people doing the same thing? You mentioned this intense architecture. I think that's an interesting one, but curious as to whether or not you have any other any other pieces. Yeah, um, it's pretty simple, but our, our North Star is developer feedback. Uh, we talk to developers every day. We want to understand their pain points, what's causing them the biggest headaches, what's causing the most friction, and addressing that head on. And most of our responsibilities are going to be meeting their pain points today and meeting the market where it is. And then we do have somewhat an obligation also to make sure that we're moving to where the puck is going and kind of focused on, on that like question I framed earlier, where if you want to onboard 4 billion people on chain, what has to change? And make sure that our infrastructure, infrastructure can scale with that invariant moving forward. But... The simplest answer I can tell you is, hey, talk to your developers, talk to your customers and figure out what they want, to, what they need, what they want to build on. For sure. And you said that part of your work is also thinking through some of the API design as well, right? Did I mishear that or is that accurate? Um, yeah. So I think Alchemy has its suite of like higher level APIs and we have an internal API committee that actually reviews all externally facing API decisions because those are, are pretty hard to reverse moving forward. Um, but then also we are starting to work with the EF on not an API, but like the P2P spec for this bundler. So the mempool that I've been talking about this whole episode doesn't actually exist yet. Um, and there are a group of smart people now starting to work together on like designing, specing, and building it. So the engineers that we've had working on the bundler are also going to be spending time designing that and building that in public. Nice. Yeah, those are, like you said, those are difficult to reverse once you make those decisions. As someone who works in developer experience right now, I can confirm changing changing API syntax yeah. has impacts. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you there. Have you heard about Hiram's Law? I have not. Uh, you should add that to the show notes too, but uh, it's an engineer. He used to be at Google, I believe. The law is with a sufficient number of users on an API, it does not matter what you promise in the contract. All observable behaviors of your system will be dependent on by somebody. Meaning like if you have an API, uh, 
there's a good XKCD here uh, where like the the pre is like the, pressing the space bar causes the whole computer to heat up. And then they send in like a patch to fix that. So the computer doesn't heat up and someone reports like, hey, like I really like relied on my computer heating up to like keep my plant on my table warm, like my plant's dying, can you undo this patch? And like the meta note is like, no matter like if you expose external functionality, like someone will depend on it for something. So changing an API becomes very, very difficult, especially once you're operating at alchemy scale. Yeah, that sort of dynamic has also made me more of a, I lean towards like simple designs now where like I'm, I'd rather, I'm, I'm curious as to how you think about this, but I'd rather have a very simple interface that like has some abstractions, but not too many. Like I'm not one for like implementing all these different edge cases into SDKs or APIs anymore. Cause it, like it, you, you think no one uses them, but one person out there uses them and it gets confusing because there's multiple ways to do the same thing. How, how do you see that? You're nodding your head. Like you think similarly. Yeah, hundred um, percent. We try to minimize complexity, especially for the client, um, and try to make things as composable as possible. So you can create, like, you can build these higher level primitives and even maybe package them in S SDKs and stuff. Um, but they're each just combinations of like very simple APIs that we expose that do one thing, don't have side effects, and are easy to understand. Yep, yep. We're on the same page with that one. Uh, okay, here, here's here's a more personal one. What's like your favorite technical contribution or design or thing you've implemented since starting working, starting your work in crypto? Uh, like, do, do you have like an all-time favorite or highlight or two that you'd like to call out or at least share? That's a great question. Honestly, I think the things that excite me the most are what we're working on right now in the account accounting ecosystem. I'm like really excited for the bundler to hit uh, open source in a couple of weeks. We've been talking to some folks in the ecosystem that want to use that to start playing around from like an MEV perspective too on like what. You can think about ERC-4337 as almost a, a system for generalized uh, alternate mempools and like what other kinds of alternate mempools would we want. Um, and I think just like being able to push the ecosystem forward in this way and being on the leading edge of like, hey, like here's a huge UX unlock. It doesn't compromise on the values of the space. How do we get the ball rolling has been really exciting. But I, I don't know, the whole whole time in crypto, like, you know, it too, it's, it's foot on the pedal 24-7 and... Uh, like it's always exciting and like there's been plenty of other things we've done at Alchemy, like working with our chain partners at Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, for example. Uh, I, I worked pretty closely with all of those teams to kind of like build Alchemy support for the ecosystems. And it was incredible to learn about how they thought about approaching the like scaling problem and what they're doing there too. So uh, no, it's not a short list of things that I've enjoyed working on here. That's cool. And then, you know, let's say that someone out there listening is... Uh... You know, say they're early in their career in the industry, maybe they're like a junior dev at some company in the space, uh, and they're listening to this going, like, how can I get better? Like, like, how do I improve? Like, how do I become like a senior dev or uh, like advance in my career and just know more, maybe found a protocol or something like that? What advice do you have for people early in their, their, in their path here? Yeah, great question. Um, two answers here. One is uh, to be an effective engineer in crypto, you still have to be an effective engineer, period. And that understands, that means just like understanding engineering best practices, like how to scale systems, what systems look like with a billion active users and start modeling how your systems can get to a billion active users in a way that lets you grow your technical systems responsibly. Um, and especially in crypto, like the security blast rate is quite high, the, the consequences of systems going down is quite high. And like engineering rigor really needs to be in the forefront of a lot of these problems. So understanding 
like just training, getting, finding mentors, understanding best practices, reading books, understanding the theory, and like getting a good grasp on like what it means to be a distributed systems engineer, which is like the crux of engineering crypto. I think the other part of that that I tell everyone at Alchemy too is just curiosity. I think crypto has just so many rabbit holes, and the people that I've seen most efficiently able to execute here are people that follow the rabbit holes, use those to like iteratively build their frameworks of how the whole ecosystem operates and have like a really strong vantage point from which they can make trade-offs and decisions from. And the number one thing there is just like going in and peeling back the hood and not just like black boxing components of like, oh, MEV is just this thing that exists. I'm just like not going to deal about that. The most successful people here have seen like, oh, MEV is pretty interesting. Like, like what is MEV? Where does it manifest? How are people thinking about mitigating it? Like what's the infrastructure to support it? Like what are the concrete actors? Like maybe I'll write a searcher. Like, let me see, like, let me like go study these past attacks and like really understand how the whole ecosystem works. I think it's just like being able to repeatedly do that across a lot of different verticals gives you a very good platform to understand the whole space from. I love it. Yeah, that's a great answer. Very helpful answer too. Um, all right, last question for you before we wrap up. Uh, this is something we ask almost everybody that comes on. I, I kind of can intuit what your answer might be here, but uh, how do you hope this industry evolves over the next decade? What would you like to see happen? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the answer I've been giving folks here is kind of, it rhymes with the evolution of the internet where 25 years ago, there were internet companies and companies and the internet companies were doing like wild, novel, crazy things and had weird business models. And a lot of them went out of business, but like the kernel of what stayed has shaped the whole world today. And today, really every company is an internet company. You don't really call them internet companies, but like even Saudi Aramco has a website, right? Like every company is an internet company. Um, and like today there are crypto companies and companies and the crypto companies are doing like weird, crazy things and have weird business models. And like maybe a lot of them will go out of business. But I think there's like a really powerful kernel here. Kernel here. And the idea is in 10, maybe a little bit longer, 10 to 20 years, that every company is a crypto company and we're not calling them crypto companies, but they're providing value to the end users based on operating on crypto rails. And it's not necessarily crypto forward, but it's using this decentralized substrate to provide end users a lot of value. I love it. Yeah, another another good answer. Um, but listen, no, this has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot in this conversation. Appreciate you letting me uh, dig pretty deep on some of this architecture. Uh, and I think our listeners will appreciate it as well. So thank you. Appreciate it, yeah. And one last plug, actually. So kind of circling back to one of the first things that I mentioned, um, account abstraction is kind of a confusing term. It's a little bit hard to understand what the pieces are, how you might like incorporate it as a developer, how it might impact your end users, how it might impact you as an end user. Um, and so we're starting to put together just an account abstraction content hub. I think it'll be live by the time this, this podcast goes live. And we're just like aggregating all the resources I mentioned today, as well as everything that we've seen in the ecosystem in order to like help streamline the educational on-ramp to account abstraction. Fantastic. Yeah, if it's live by the time we release this, I'll definitely link it in the, the episode notes. But yeah, no, thank you again for being here. Yeah, thanks, Sam.